0: Of course, we know that your angels have already been celebrating before we got there. (laughs) Thank you, and we welcome George. And I just pray that this seed that has been planted would now grow. And Lord, I I just pause for a moment, too, as, as we think about the people in our lives that we have been praying for for years and even decades. And Lord, just for a moment, I want to pause and have everyone in here think of someone that needs you. And now, Lord, the person that has come to mind in all of ours, all of our minds, God, we lift we lift them up to you. We ask, Lord, that the veil of darkness that has prevented them from coming to knowledge of you would be pierced. And maybe, Lord, this, this Easter season that is approaching, maybe this will be the time. We pray that it will be. And in this moment, we give this person to you. Lord Jesus, make a way, a way that has been made with Jean's husband, we ask, would be made with these people we love as well. Lord, we pray for Becky. At home today and very ill, we just would ask that you would touch her body. We think about Josh Lillo's girls and parents and all of the people that Josh meant so very much to help us in this time of grief. I thank you for opportunities you give us, sometimes in unexpected places, to just share your good news and your love. Thank you for Liz's experience. Lord, I look at this list of, <laughs> of requests on here, and there are those among us that need your healing touch Stephen Donner Roth, Sandy Ashbow, Andy Vogie, Ricky Herrig. Lord God, we need you. You are the only one who brings true healing, both now and forever. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, if you were able to be here with us last week, um you know that I was kind of aggravated because I wanted to finish my sermon that I had prepared and I went too long. And I stopped. And all God's people said, that's not nice. <laughs> you know, you, I, you're not supposed to say it like that. But it turns out God knows what he's doing. He usually does. In fact, he always does. And I think, um, looking back, there was a reason why Uh, I was to stop when I did, and I think what we need to say today um, needed to be its own day. So I am always thankful that the Lord is a better structurer of sermons than I am. So today, um, we're going to continue on in Luke chapter 20. And last week, we talked about death and taxes, if you remember that. Uh, Jesus was, well, the Jewish leaders attempted to trap Jesus. But Jesus sprung their trap on these two important topics. And what we're going to talk about today connects directly with what we talked about last week. These are connected. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 41 today. And what do we do before we read Scripture? We pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, it is with recognition that we need you to interpret it appropriately. For too too many times, Lord, people open up the Bible and try to just use their own intellect to figure it out. And although our own intellect can take us some of the distance that needs to be traveled, Lord, it is only with your inspiration that we can understand your word. In its fullness. So, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Open up your word for us. Amen. Excuse me. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the Son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. You know, when Jesus says that you're going to be punished the most severely. (laughs) The most severely. You might want to take note. There's something very interesting about this passage of Scripture. Something that you may not realize until I'm about to point it out to you. This is the first and only time... In the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus initiates a discussion of Scripture. This is the first and only time in the book of Luke that Jesus initiates a discussion of Scripture. All of the other times when we've talked about Old Testament Scripture, it's because someone else has initiated the discussion. Do you suppose this might be important? Do you suppose that this might really matter, this little piece of Scripture that Jesus decides to bring up? Maybe this is worth taking a look at. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so just a reminder, this entire section in the book of Luke that we are talking about, this all takes place... Excuse me, I've got a little frog in my throat. This all takes place during the final week of Jesus' time on earth. And it all takes place in Jerusalem. And the entire book of Luke has been building toward this one week in Jerusalem. So, this whole section of teaching. It starts starts right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it's all been centered on, the entire section of teaching has all been centered on one thing. Do you remember? The authority of Jesus. Does Jesus have the authority to say the things that he is saying? And remember, it started with Jesus clearing the temple. Does Jesus have the authority to clear the temple? Does Jesus have the authority to say... Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. Does Jesus have the authority to tell you what's going to happen after you die? Does Jesus get to say, I'm the authority on what happens, on whether or not you will be resurrected from the dead? Does Jesus have the authority to say any of these things and do any of these things? The Jewish leaders... Do not think Jesus has that authority, do they? And they have set traps, but they didn't work. Jesus sprung their traps. And now, Jesus challenges the Jewish leaders with a scripture of his own. Do you recognize, now don't cheating, don't look at your little footnote on this one, okay? Because there's a prize. There's a prize with this one. Do you recognize the verse that Jesus quotes? Verse 41 through 43. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, Well, you know it's Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I have Tootsie Pops. If this works in youth ministry, this is going to work on Sunday morning. Who knows what passage of Scripture Jesus is quoting right there? Oh, you're so close. Not quite right. Psalm 109, not quite right. Psalm 110, which verse? Oh no! I Bonnie, we got to get back in the in the because we're out we're out of touch here. Okay, Amber, you were like literally a verse away. What? There's the correct answer. Okay, you got Psalm 110. Okay, here we go. Perfect. I've got one sucker left. I've got one sucker left because there's one added question I need to say about Psalm 110 verse 1. There's something very special about Psalm 110 verse 1. Something that I have said before, actually repeatedly over the years about Psalm 110 verse 1. By a show of hand, who knows what that special thing is about Psalm 110 verse 1? You already got a sucker. Mike Fitzloff, what is special about Psalm 110 verse 1? It is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament. That was good. Did you see that? Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Okay, Psalm 110 verse 1 is the only scripture that Jesus initiated a conversation about in the book of Luke. Might this be an important passage of scripture? Say yes. Psalm 110 verse 1 matters. It's a big deal in the Christian faith. Isn't that strange? Does that look like it should be that big of a deal? You would think that a scripture like about love would be an important one, right? Well, it is good. I mean, you know, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, that's a good one, but it's not the one Jesus chose, right? So maybe you think that a scripture about, I don't know, a covenant would be an important one. Okay, that's, that's good, you know the whole law and the prophets hang on this, you know, phrase, love the Lord your God with our heart and love your neighbors yourself. Yes, but this is the one that's the most quoted. This one. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What a strange passage to be the most quoted one. Well, Why? Why did Jesus decide that this one was the one? Oh, by the way, do you know the first time that this passage was quoted after this one in the chronology? I don't have any suckers left. It's the very first sermon that is preached after Jesus raises from the dead. Acts chapter 2. This passage is quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 in his first sermon. The first Christian sermon ever preached. Look in Acts chapter 2. That's one of the, it's like the primary around, he builds his whole sermon around that. There's also some stuff in Joel and some other stuff, but the sermon's built around that. Isn't it so strange? I find this crazy strange. When When you run across something like this in the church... When the church doesn't recognize something of this vital importance, something is amiss. Did did you catch that? When the church generally doesn't realize all of the things that I've just said to you, something is amiss. Like we are missing something. We have been. So So what is so important about this? Well, let's go back to verse 41. What does Jesus say? Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the Son of David? That's Jesus' questions for the Jewish leader. How is it that they say the Christ, there's that word, the Christ? Oh, I'm out of suckers. I could have been giving suckers out all day today. The word Christ means what? I heard some people say Messiah, and I heard some people say anointed one. They're both correct. The word Christ is Greek. It means the anointed one. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is Messiah. Messiah and Christ are the same word in two different languages. I've said that to you before as well. So, if you want to say it in Greek, you say Christ. If you want to say it in Hebrew, you say Messiah. If you want to say it in English, you say, anointed one. It's what the word means. So, Jesus is challenging the Jewish leaders to rethink what the Jews thought they knew about the Messiah. That's what Jesus is doing here. Remember, this is like a day before the Last Supper, two days before the trial, probably three days before he's crucified. Jesus is bringing this up to the Jewish leaders, right? He's challenging them to rethink what they thought they knew already about the Messiah, the Anointed One. And he used Psalm 110, verse 1, to bring this very specific challenge into clear focus. And then in verse 44, Jesus says, after quoting Psalm 110, Jesus says, David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? You see, the Jews of Jesus' time, they were happy to to call the promised Messiah by his title, King or Son of David, Son of the King, Son of King David. They were happy to say the Messiah, the, the anointed one, is going to be the son of David. And they believed that this was going to be literally true. Like they believed that the Messiah was going to be literally related to King David. Like part of the the royal line of King David. The Messiah would be an heir of David. So then you can call him Son of David. Makes sense. But Jesus challenges them to think. How could the Messiah, how could the Anointed One be the Son of David, which he was, And yet, David refers to this anointed one as not just a son, but he calls him Lord. Lord! Now, I'm a father. I'm not going to be calling my son Lord anytime soon. You're going to call your son Lord? Randy, even if your son school you in basketball... Even when that day comes, if it hasn't come already. Okay. Are you going to call Tyson Lord? That ain't going to happen. That is not going to happen. In your wildest dreams, someone could threaten to cut my arm off. I am not calling you Lord, Ryan. I love you, but it's not happening. It is not going to happen. And Jesus points out the inconsistency. This guy who is a a son of David. This isn't just any David. David. Which David is this? King David. The highest, best example of what it means to be the king of Israel. You think that guy is going to call anybody Lord who is his descendant? Ain't no way. So then Jesus says, then how can the." How can Psalm 110, verse 1 be true? You great Jewish leaders say, you claim you live by the Bible. You claim you live by everything that, that Moses and the prophets wrote. You claim that you love King David and believe that his Psalms are correct. Then show me how this can be true. Show me how this can be true. ha, <laughs> ha. This is Jesus' ultimate answer to the original question. Way at the beginning of chapter 20, the original question was asked. Look at chapter 20, verse 2. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave this authority to you? Do you know what Jesus is saying here? I mean, this isn't that tricky. There are people who claim that Jesus was only a good moral teacher. There are people who claim that he was just a guy. There are people who make the claim about Jesus that he may have been even the son of David. You could even give him the title of Christ, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. Mormons don't believe that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that. People of the Abrahamic covenant do not believe that. Then explain Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament passage. It's the only one initiated by Jesus because it proves the Messiah isn't just another guy. He's not just another person in the line of David. It is Psalm 110 verse 1 that proves that the Messiah is also the Lord. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, is King and God. Amen. And then Jesus... Goes on to say in verses 45 through 47. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Now, what made these leaders so evil? What made these leaders so evil? They liked to look good, but they did not like to do good. And this idea carries right into the last section we're going to look at today. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, I think you can see how this connects right in with the section before, and again, we're reading, the, we're reading this expositionally, so we're reading it in context. A lot of people like to take the widow's might story, this little story, and pull it out of context. Do you see? This story of the widow's might connects in directly with Jesus' pronouncement that he's God. Do you see that? Now, not only is Jesus God, but right after he says, I am God, he denounces the Jewish leaders because of their hypocrisy. Because of their, they like to look good but don't follow through with anything. And then he goes right into the story of the widow's might. The widow that the great Jewish leaders devoured, right? It said that in the previous passage, devoured. The widow is actually showing greater love towards God than the Jewish leaders who love to make a big show about how great their religious faith is. Now, this little story, it's, it's only a few lines, but it has deep meaning in the church. You see, the Lord is not impressed by your show. This is important. The Lord is not impressed by your show. How much of Christianity today has turned into a show? It's just like entertainment, like we're competing with Netflix. What are we doing? Is that all we are? Entertainment? And are you consumers? Is that what you are? Are you just consumers? Are you just audience members that just consume the entertainment that we produce? Now, your clip was good, though. That that had entertaining value. But that's not all we are. Now, there are literally hundreds of books out there right now that they're trying to figure out in the church... Hundreds of Christian books. Why are millennials and Gen Z leaving the church? Why is it that as soon as kids get out of high school, they are done? Why is that? What's going on? Well, there's all kinds of reasons why. And some of the, the answers that the church is giving are just flat wrong. Some of the answers are we just need to be more entertaining, we just need to have a better show. We, we just need to have better musicians or uh, way better speakers, right? If we just had way better pastors that could preach and just communicate and connect with this generation, we'd be, they'd just come back. False. False. Do you know why millennials and Gen Z are leaving the church? Now, this is probably me. I'm going out on a limb right here, but I think I know the answer. They don't want to see fake people. They, they can see through fake people. Now, for some reason, us older types have gotten used to the entertainment side of Christianity. And when people are super fake, we just think, "Wow, well, they're, just, they're just, you know, they're doing their whatever. They're being professional, right? Millennials and Gen Z don't want professionals. They want real. They don't want, they don't want you to say, here's what you do to live a good marriage. They want to see people actually live in a real marriage. Even if it's not perfect. They want people to say, I'm making a mistake. I'm a work in progress too. Now, I'm not saying it's okay to just live your life in sin. Have you referenced holiness sermons? There's like 12 of them out there somewhere, okay? I'm not saying it's okay to live in sin. But it is very okay to say, I'm a work in progress. I am here by the grace of Christ. And by the grace of Christ go I. They don't need some perfect spit and polish person up here doing everything just right. Now, we should, we should strive for perfection. We should strive to do our best. yes. But that's why millennials and Gen Z are leaving, because they see fake everywhere in the church. You know, I'm seeing a whole lot of millennials and Gen Z right now engaged in a way that I have not seen in a lot. I'm seeing this. Yep. Yep. You know, uh, I've I've told you before that Dave Dooley is a friend of mine, a pastor. He was our camp speaker a couple times at family camp. Uh, he and I still communicate via text before every Sunday morning. Uh, he, we text and we pray for each other. Do you know what the text was that he sent me today? It was just a picture of his Bible. And here's the, here's the verse he put on there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through five. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Hey, church, the church for the past 50 years has forgotten that section, I think. It's not about eloquent words. It's not about polish it's about the Holy Spirit working through us and in us together as we make it through the world. I think we should stop being so professional and start being real. We need less show and more authenticity in the church today. We need less entertainment and more of the Spirit's power. We need More Christians in the church to give sacrificially to the cause of God's kingdom. And less Christians to make a big deal about their big gift. Right? Luke 21 verse 2. He saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. How much was that? Well, one of my commentaries said, that two small copper coins had the equivalent value of one one-hundredth of a denarius. One one-hundredth of a denarius. That means that was worth approximately five minutes of labor at minimum wage. Well, the minimum wage in our country is seven twenty-five an hour. Not in our state, but in our country. Do you know what? 5 minutes at 725 an hour is 60 cents. 60 cents. So measured against the world 60 cents is a very small amount. Why does God care about 60 cents? What do I do nearly every week when we receive our tithes and offerings? I say Jesus wants our hearts, and where our treasure goes is where our heart is as well. From God's perspective, it's not about the amount. You know, our church doesn't stress about money. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? I don't stand up here and beg you for money. Because we trust God's going to work on you to give as you are told to give. Let's get practical for a moment. Are you giving to the work of the Lord? Now, okay, this is a danger area and I've already stepped in it just a little bit because millennials and Gen Z, as long as we're talking about you, I'll bring you up again, okay? Millennials and Gen Z are hyper aware when churches are perceived as grabbing for money. You know these TV evangelists? Can, can we get a bus together? I'm not driving, but can we get a bus together and go just find these people and, and just shake them and say, stop. Please stop. TV evangelists, please stop doing this. Joel Olstein, please stop asking for money and telling people that they will be blessed by God if they give money. Please stop. This prosperity gospel is garbage. It's garbage. That's not how the kingdom of God works. So, notice when I'm saying, are you giving to the work of the Lord? Notice, millennials and Gen Z, I am not saying, and now you need to give to New Life Church of God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, are you giving to the kingdom of God? In this church, we are quick to tell you there are so many places that are God-honoring to give your money. Lakes Area Pregnancy Support Center, Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, Camp Arrowhead, the Gideons. There are so many places. That's just ones that we constantly talk about here. You know, missionaries. Our church tithes 10% of what you give out. There are so many places to give that are worthy places to give to God's kingdom and God is speaking to you. Oh, and this next part's going to, this is going to irritate you. Maybe. I'm excited to say this part. It is always amazing to me how hypocritical Christians can be sometimes. Can I give you an example? Abortion. Let's use abortion the example that drives our political process in the church today, shall we? I have heard so many Christians go totally nuts, absolutely crazy in their disgust against abortion as a practice in their country and give no money to laps. Are you crazy? They're so worried about the political stuff of abortion and they do nothing at the local level to help people who are actually dealing with this difficult choice in their life. If you've never given to a to lapse or a pregnancy support center, do not say anything else about abortion. Do not say anything else about how disgusted you are with political candidates. Do say, say nothing about. Anything regarding abortion if you've given nothing to help a local person who's struggling with this issue. You are a hypocrite. Uh, I wanted to quote Jesus there. What does that say? Oh, you will be punished the most severely. And now, one more thing. We're going through Dave Ramsey right now, Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey's course on how to manage money God's way. And we're budgeting. And I've heard this so many times by people who are trying to get things going the right direction. And this is what they say You know, I got payments and I got stuff happening and life's hard. And I just, I, I, I just. I just can't tithe right now. I just can't give money to the church and I, I can't, or, or LAPS or Teen Challenge because I just need all this money to go toward these debts and stuff like that. If you can only give 60 cents, And give 60 cents. Youth. How many teenagers on Wednesday night let the bucket go by for Children of Promise? I just couldn't, I just can't remember to bring any money on Wednesday night. I just forget every time. Mm-hmm. Excuses are done now for youth after this sermon. Done. Done. Well, I don't have hardly any income. How much did she have? If you don't give to the work of the kingdom of God somewhere, whether it's this church or... That is a spiritual problem that is at your core that is destroying you. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? When you make your budget, there's a reason why tithe is at the top. That comes off the top. The first fruits comes off the top. And you know what's amazing? Everybody I have ever counseled financially, when they take the tithe off the top, Somehow it works every month. Somehow they don't starve. Now, do not confuse this with the prosperity gospel. Do not confuse this with Joel Osteen. This is not what Joel Osteen is saying. What I'm saying is, when you recognize that all you have is God's and not yours, you will do everything differently, starting with this concept. I'm five minutes over again. I think the Lord knew that this needed to be two sermons, not one. Jesus Christ is Lord. Give. It's where your heart is. Listen to God. He will point you where to give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just for a moment, we just want to stop and be in awe of you. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And you are the Lord of even King David. Because you are the Lord. We worship you. You are worthy. Amen.